Christian Church. We hope you enjoy this message and we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030. We're located at 432 East Pleasant in Tulare. After listening to this message, take a moment to browse our website for current and upcoming events. It is our prayer that ultimately you learn to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, grab your Bibles. We're in Revelations 3 this morning. And I don't know about you, uh, I like to play around on the on the net a little bit and go to different sites. I kind of like some weird things. Um, uh, good, th- and I don't want to say. When I say weird things, I don't mean like weird bad things, okay? But but I ran across this probably in about ninety six, ninety seven, the early days is, uh, early days of the web and stuff. And I, we say early day, early days of everybody getting on the web because it's been around since like the seventies. Probably didn't know that. But but have you ever ran across the Darwin Awards? Have you ever heard of the Darwin Awards? I mean, we're, we're very much anti-Darwin, you know, especially the church, you know. But the, the, this website, here's a quote from the re- website. It used to be on there, and they've actually changed the website, so this quote's no longer on there. But it was on there at one time. It says, in the spirit of Charles Darwin, the Darwin Awards commemorate individuals who protect our gene pool by making the ultimate sacrifice of their lives. Darwin Award winners eliminate themselves in an extraordinary idiotic manner, thereby improving our species' long-term survival. So now you can understand my humor. But they have all these, really just these stories of idiotic ways of, of how these guys have, have died. And, and, you know, we, we read it, we look at it, and we just go, you've you got to be joking, uh, one of them goes like this, and this is January 1st, 2000. This guy was, a, you know, had the privilege, he was the first guy to die in Nevada in the year 2000. It goes like this. 26-year-old Todd made a place for, for himself in history by being the first person to die celebrating the millennium. Minutes before midnight, the Stanford graduate climbed on top of the street light in front of the Paris Las Vegas Hotel and waved to the enthusiastic revelers below. He's trying to get them all riled up, okay? At midnight, he slipped. In an effort to break his fall, he grabbed the wires that were supplying the electricity to the street light. Suddenly, he was conducting more than a cheering crowd. A camera caught his full-heartedly climb and subsequent head-first plunge to the concrete below. That'll hurt you. It has never yet been determined whether he died from electrocution or the 30-foot fall. But either way, he deserves the first Darwin Award of the new millennium. Now, they had a little footnote that was actually even more interesting. Todd was a Stanford graduate working at a Silicon Valley startup scheduled to go public in that summer. Now, this is right when the web, I mean, you know, anything connected to to internet and startups, I mean, he, he... He's still to make millions here. Uh, 
And it's, in fact, it goes on. It's, he stood to make a substantial profit with his options until they were voided by his untimely death. Clearly, a sterling academic pedigree is no indication of common sense. Before leaving to Vegas, one friend said, People are going to do crazy things. Be careful. Todd replied, You know I won't. Friends pondering his death said he thought he was invisible, invincible. He used to climb the Golden Gate Bridge. He would never do something stupid. I was stuck by the last three quotes. It made me think a little bit. You know, I, I don't know Todd any more than you know Todd. Uh, you know, he, it says here that he used to climb the Golden Gate Bridge, but he would never do something stupid. What kind of people did he hang out with? I mean, to me, it sounds like he lived a life where, you know, you could see the writing on the wall. He was going to do something stupid like this to get himself killed. I mean, we kind of laugh. I mean, it's a very sad situation. But this got me really thinking about how we do the same thing with our spiritual life. We look at risk takers and we say, man, what a loss. They died too young. Here you build a life. I mean, Todd was going to Stanford. He had a bright future, and it's all gone. Some people live their spiritual life the same way. When it comes to God and religious issues, when it comes to Jesus Christ, I am invincible, and someday I will get to that. Someday I will, I will get around, but right now I'm going to take the risk of this life. There was a church in ancient times that lived the same way. They took spiritual risk, and they pretty much ignored Jesus. They thought they were invincible. And one day, Jesus wrote a letter, and we're going to pick up here in Revelations 3, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will... Like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this church in Sardis, it was in the interior part of Turkey, so kind of in the middle of the landmass there. And it had the largest synagogue outside of Jerusalem. At one time, it was the capital of the, of the country that, you know, called uh, Lydia or Lydia, however you want to pronounce that. It was one of the richest cities in the world. And here's a couple of pictures uh, of what's left now. Uh, the picture on the right is part of the synagogue that was rebuilt as a, uh, you know, the archaeologists got in there and dug around and stuff. But this, uh, King Croesus from 595 to 547 B.C., he, he was the king there. And it was built... The, the whole town was built on this cliff. So, so you had cliffs on like three sides, and there was only one entrance to the town at all. So you didn't really have to protect it that much. 
Only two times in history was it ever defeated in war, and both times someone climbed up the rock wall and opened the gates, and therefore it was defeated. One was King Cyrus, uh, the Persian. He was fighting the Greeks, and King Croesus had taken the Greek side uh, of those that, you know, and, and so King Cyrus came in and, and uh, took, uh, took care of it. Basically what happened was Cyrus and his men were standing out behind the cliffs, and they were sitting there going, how are we ever going to get in here? This, this place you can't get in. And they were watching, and a guy was up on the wall during the daytime, and his helmet fell off, and it fell down because they had several watchmen, and it fell down the side of the cliff. Well, the guy climbed over the wall, down the side of the cliff on a path that was there, and then he got his helmet and went back up, and they went, that's how we're going to get in. So that night, they sent 20 guys up that wall that was not protected at night, and they opened the gates, and they they beat them that way. The other guy, it came in, and basically the same thing. But it was a a city that was was known for, for several things. One was being fat, being soft, and being lazy. In fact, their men were so large that they stopped wearing their battle gear and they started wearing Greek tunics because the battle gear stopped fitting them after a while. It was mandatory for boys to learn how to play the harp. They had to learn how to dance and they had to learn how to sing. They didn't want soldiers within the city. The more soldiers you had, the more problems you had. The more soldiers you had, there was going to be a coup. You see, no soldiers, no problems is the way they looked at it. Another thing they had to do is learn a trade. So therefore, it became one of the wealthiest cities in this part of Turkey uh, at that time. Now, it also didn't hurt that they lived on a mountain that had gold and silver in it. So everybody wanted, you know, wanted that place, but that didn't hurt on that. So, so some would, would even use a word today that, that we're really not supposed to use. They would call the city, city kind of a, a sissy boy city, you know, but they were rich guys. So, I mean, they were fat, soft, and lazy, and they had all these jobs. That, so they didn't get out, and they didn't really work hard. And eventually the Romans came, and the city never achieved greatness again. But this little church stayed right there. And Jesus says, uh, here's a, another couple of pictures of the, of the ruins there. But Jesus says to them, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, when I first read this, it's kind of odd to me. It doesn't appear anywhere else in scripture whatsoever. Because I know of only one spirit, the spirit of God, not seven spirits of God. Now, most scholars believe, they look at, look at revelations in, in four different views, especially these churches. One, the first view is kind of, there, there was really a church in the city that Jesus was writing a letter to. We, we believe that. The second part would be that, you know, these are prototype churches who would always exist through, throughout time. And, and as we read it, we would have to figure out, okay, are we this church? Are we not this church as we go through these seven churches? Well, we would, we would look at that. I would agree with, with that too. The third view is, uh, you know, would typify the individuals within the church. So we would have different individuals as we went through these, these you know, we had the underdog church. We had the, uh, what are some of the other churches that we had? My mind just went blank on me. The tolerant church, you know, where, oh, we can just allow anything uh, within the church. We have different individuals that believe different things. And we have to, as we read this and study this, we have to go, okay, who am I in these seven churches? Well, I can agree with that one also. 
So the fourth one is that these are different church ages. Uh, prophetic announcements about different, uh, like millennials and stuff. And that one, yeah, that one goes back and forth. But I look at this and say, man, it could be, you know, some of all of those. Because it's important for us to remember that the Spirit moves in the church. And it wasn't moving in Sardis. He was telling them right off the bat, I control the Holy Spirit. I control it. And these seven churches, he is in control of them. So pay attention, because you've got to remember, as he wrote this to these seven churches, all these seven churches would have read every one of these letters. He says to them, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You might as well be in the ground. That is a powerful statement. This is a church who rested on their past accomplishments. This church used to do really well, but somewhere along the line, it started getting fat. It started getting soft. It started getting lazy. Programs looked great. Everybody was, was happy, but Jesus looked at them and said, man, you're, you're really just dead. You're not doing anything by the Spirit of God. Now, what is weird about this church is that, you know, in this, I, I don't see any enemies here. You know, in all the other ones that we've studied, the four, four or five different churches that we've looked at so far, Jesus would say, hey, watch out for, for, for this woman that, that, that I'm going to call Jezebel, or, or watch out for this uh, group of people, or watch out for this thinking within the church. Beware of this. This church, he doesn't say anything like that. With Sardis, there is no enemy. There's no conflict, you know, no conflict in, in the church. They were having nothing. In fact, this church was soft, fat, and lazy. Looks great on the outside. So much so, the enemy doesn't even have to attack. He doesn't even have to worry about them because they were so worthless. And in fact, Jesus says in Luke, 26, or Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how the fathers treated the false prophets. This church, everything worked well, and the enemy wasn't attacking. Why? Because the Spirit of God was not active within that church. Jesus is trying to wake them up. In fact, he says, wake up. It's almost like a zombie church. They're just kind of glossed out, don't really know what's going on in this world. He's saying, wake up. Strengthen what, what remains and is about to die, for I have found, not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. I love this. Jesus doesn't say, I'm throwing you away. He doesn't say, that's it, you're cut off. He says, I have a task for you. I have something that I called you to do, and you're not doing it. And you still need to complete that task. Jesus doesn't give up on us. You know, it occurred to me when I woke up one morning this week. I am closer to eternity today than I was yesterday. And so are you. So the question is this. What difference did yesterday make in your life? What difference did yesterday make for, for, for Christ? Did I gain or did I lose yesterday? Did I gain in the context of heaven and eternity? Did you do anything to further God's message on this earth? Some would say, well, no, I, well, I didn't, I didn't preach, to, you know, preach Jesus to anyone, so therefore I didn't gain. And that's not really what I'm talking about here. 
You can gain by making godly decisions in your life. You can gain by, by, you know, those little steps that you take toward God. You can gain by raising your children in the right way and in a good way. You can gain by how you treat people you come in contact with, with the Lord, you know, and how you treat them. Do I treat them Christ-like or not? You can gain by being more Christ-like. So is yesterday a gain or a loss for you? Because most of us, it goes like this. We lose a day, and that progresses into a whole week, and then we've lost that week. And then we go on, and those weeks turn into to months, and then years go by. Put it like this. You want to lose weight, so you go, well, I need to stop eating this. Well, I'm going to stop eating this tomorrow. Well, that turns into a week. A week later, you're still eating it. Well, I'm going to stop eating that. And then it turns into a month. Well, I'm going to stop eating. Yeah, I, people are laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. And weeks turns into years, and you're sitting there going, man, I should have stopped eating that a long time ago. Well, that's how our relationship is with God. I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start getting toward more, and, and then a week goes by. Well, I'm going to, I, I really need to, to, to start that. Man, I really need to, and, and weeks turns into months, and months can turn into years sometimes. In Romans 13, it says, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or, or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. It struck me when I read this. He is saying, just, just like Christ is saying, he is saying, wake up, the hour is near. Wake up. It's fixing to happen. It's going to happen. Wake up from your slumber. You know, I thought about this, and it got me thinking about how we go, someday I'm going to deal with this issue. Someday I ought to deal with that issue. It's easy to think of food, oh, I need to stop doing this, stop doing that. But it's harder to think, man, I got this issue in my life that's kind of hanging over me, and someday I'm going to deal with that. And I ask the question, what has God always wanted you to do or to complete that you've tossed over to the side or just kind of put away in the back shed. You know it's in the shed. You, you know you have it. And one day when you, when you need it, it's going to be in the back corner with everything piled in front of my shed right now. You don't want to go into it. It's hard to step in there. I had somebody help me clean some of it out the other day. I just, just, just pile it out there. I'll deal with it. Someday I'm going to have to deal with that. You get the point? Same thing with, you know, someday we put the things of God up in the shed. Maybe it's something like this. Christ is saying, I want you to go to a counselor and work through that issue. Or, you have been too long in the faith and ignorant about my word. You don't know who I am. So God has told you to study the Bible. Or maybe even lead a Bible study to force you to study the Bible so you can get into his word. Or maybe the Lord has said, you have said long enough. It's now time to get up and be active. Whatever it may be, is God talking to you right now? 
Because, you know, I know that we all have something that we've taken that God has asked us to do and we've put it up on the shelf or we've put it in the, in the shed or we've buried it in the garage. And, God, and you're asking God, what is it you want me to do? Because we've all said, someday I'm going to. And then we start down the path of life. Work happens. I keep telling college students, I, I got a whole bunch of friends that, have, uh, that are in college and, uh, from where I used to work and, and stuff. And I'm always telling them, enjoy your college life right now. You know, do your work. College is work. Don't get me wrong. You know, you got to do your classes. You got to study. You got to do well. But enjoy it because as soon as you graduate, what happens? Parents say, get a job, right? So work comes along. Family comes along. Obligations come along. Kids come along. And it all adds up. And there goes the time. Jesus is saying time is slipping by. When Jesus created you, he created you for something very specific, to have a purpose and a destiny. You know, too often we think of, of this as, as sacrificing all relationships. If I go to Christ, I've got to sacrifice all relationships, and I've got to head off to some backwards co- uh, you know, country that hasn't ever heard of Christ, and I need to go tell them about Christ, because that's what you do when you accept God. Reality is that's not necessarily true. That may be very few people's calling, and God may call them for that, but that's not necessarily every person's calling. Jesus most likely wants you to do something right here. But what happens is life gets thrown at us, and we get beat up. You ever feel beat up in life? It's like one thing after another, and you're just like, can it just stop? And God goes, no, no, I don't don't want you to die yet. That's when it stops. I was talking to a neighbor the other day, and we're both in our early 40s, and and I can at least say that for a couple of more years. And, and you know, we're just now finding out that, that we're kind of in the same place with our families. You know, we've always gone home to, to families, you know, and, and enjoyed holidays, enjoyed all these things. We never really had family issues. But over the last couple of years, it's been difficult for, for both of us. Because going home is not the same as it used to be because of those family issues. And one thing I, 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 you know, and I've been dealing with it, and slowly, the, you know, the Lord's dealing with, with me and that issue and all that, but, but you know, this has really consumed this, this person's life. And I just thought, wow, we can either allow things to consume us that hit us upside the head, or we can deal with them and move on toward Jesus. Because we can all go back to some event in our life. And say, this is really, this, this really, this thing right here, this got to me. Some would even say, man, this is what really messed me up. Maybe it's a childhood thing. Maybe it was the college thing, something happened in college. Or, or, or maybe it's the marriage thing. Or maybe it's a person you didn't marry. Something has got to you. And you, you're like, man, I got kicked. I got beat up. I got burnt out. I got, you know, diverted from the path that God wanted me on. And I've never been able to get back on that path that God wanted me on. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I've always had a purpose for you. And that hasn't changed. And you can get there. It may be difficult because wounds may need to be healed. Hurts may need to be fixed. Friendships may be, you know, need to be restored. Letters of apology or forgiveness may need to be written. And until you're willing to address those issues in your life, 
Jesus says, you're not necessarily going to get back on my path, but let me bring you along that. It may be a long one, but Jesus is right there with us. You know, sometimes we can do everything on our side, especially when it comes to relationships. And if the other person doesn't reciprocate and the other party is unwilling, we have to be able to accept it and move on. But if we sit there and hold on to that thing, we get stuck right there in that place. Jesus wants to help us down that path. You know, when Jesus looks at us now, he doesn't see our wounds. He doesn't look down and go, well, gosh, I don't love Alan because he's got a little too much weight on him this, this month. I know he's been trying to lose it for years. He doesn't look at, like, you know, he doesn't look at us like a, like a kid that's got a big old huge messy face, you know. He looks at us as a child that, that he loves. When my little boy, Brandon, comes to me, and by the way, I want to thank you guys that brought Easter candy, especially the chocolate candy. He still, luckily Lisa finally put up the eggs. But if he sees an egg, he will go look in it and try to find chocolate. And he comes out and he goes, chocolate, chocolate. But man, he's taking his chocolate out and he's just, he's loving it. So we had to like, okay, you can have this egg that has two pieces of chocolate in it. Let's hide the rest. Because he gets chocolate all over his mouth. And then he comes up, wants to give you a kiss. Now, if that was somebody else's kid, I'd be like, uh, no, go talk to your parents. I'm, no, I'm sorry. But that's my kid. I don't see him as a little messy kid with chocolate over his face. I see him as my son. So what do I, I give him a kiss. And then I'm like, can I get a napkin? That's my boy. That's how Jesus looks at us. He goes, that's my boy. That's my little girl. He loves us. He doesn't see the messiness that we have in this life. He says, I love you, and I will help you clean this up. He sees us as his child. See, the verse in Roman goes on and says that, that the time is nearer now than when we first believed. What did your relationship first mean when you accepted Jesus? Man, all excited, right? Unbelievable. Changes your life. means that he was in charge. See, that's when the maturity comes in. We get over the excitement part, and then we start to realize that this is a little harder work than I thought because he's in charge of my life, and we struggle back and forth. Let me yank that back, and God says, no, you already gave that to me. You know, if my son grabbed a knife, I would take it out of his hands. I'm not going to let him get it back. Well, Jesus looks at sin the same way. No, 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 I don't want you to have that back. You're going to hurt yourself with that. And we start whining and crying, and we jump down on the floor and pout and do everything we can because we want the knife back. And Christ is like, no, 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 I don't want you to have that. You're going to hurt yourself. Jesus is control. See, this is what baptism is all about. That when you were baptized, you were dunked in water. It means that you were dead. If you stayed in the water, what would happen? You'd be dead. 
but instead your sins were washed away and you came out of that water clean. That's what baptism represents. Now you're the, you, you know, you were resurrected into Christ, free and clear. It affects everything. And this is the hard part. This is where the rubber meets the road. It affects the friends that we choose. I'm not saying that, oh, we never talk to so-and-so again. It just, maybe we don't spend as much time because our values are different. You can still be friends, still try to influence them, but you may not go drinking with them on Friday night. I'm not anti-alcohol, but I'm anti-too much alcohol. I'm anti-what alcohol leads to. It affects who we marry, especially you young guys that are all sitting over here. It affects who you date and the reasons you, you want to marry them. It affects how we treat people. It, tra- it, it, you know, it, it affects how we respond to people. You know, what happens on the way is we go, man, this is hard, and we stop following. You have to remember Jesus is saying, heaven is closer for us today than it was yesterday. And the Spirit is trying to move in you, but you prevent it. We need to stop preventing it. Stop telling Jesus to wait. Because if you don't, years will go by before you recognize him again. And that's if you do. He goes on, he says in verse 3, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. I take this to mean that that he will bring us home, that he had other plans for us on earth, and maybe he's sitting there going, well, you're you're just doing too much damage. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to come like a thief, and and, and that's it. You you believe in me. You've accepted me, but you're not following down my path. That's one one belief on that. Scholars go back and forth on that. But how sad would it be that time has slipped by and he's going, man, if you don't remember me, if you don't repent, if you don't change directions, then it will be time. How many times have you had the conversation, I really should, and then the next day you go back into the same routine that you had for years? Jesus is saying it is enough. It is time. If you don't change it now, I'm going to come like a thief. What does a thief take? And this is another view of this. Uh, You know, it really depends. A thief takes a lot of different things. For Jesus, it may be what distracts us the most. He, like a thief, will come and snatch it away. Not to punish us, but to wake us up. Maybe our God has turned into our job, and Jesus is sitting there going, okay, maybe I'm going to take your job away because you, you, need, to, you need to get back down to the bare bones of life to, to figure out where you're going to go and what you're going to do and what you're going to believe in. Have you ever had your house broken into? If you've ever had that, you feel kind of violated or something stolen from you. But I love the statements afterward. I knew I should have put a better deadbolt on that door. I knew I should have remembered to lock my car all the time. I knew I should have got an alarm on that car. I knew I should have hid whatever better. You know, it's always after the fact that we knew we should have. 
That's because we don't prepare for the thief. Here Jesus is saying, prepare, because I will come. You keep saying someday. Well, change it to today, not someday. I don't know what it is for you, because everybody in the room is thinking, you know, about something different, because we all have different issues in our life. But Jesus has something for each of us. You know, a few years ago, the movie Narnia came out. It comes from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, uh, you know, great kid's book, and it has huge theological issues in it about, you know, it's about kids in World War II that, uh, you know, they go into this wardrobe, and as they enter out the backside of the wardrobe, it opens up, and it's this whole spiritual world. And it showed us how we usually ignore the spiritual world. So these kids have entered into this, this spiritual world, and it's really cold, and, and they meet this talking beaver, which I think is kind of funny, but, he, you know, who tells them it's always cold because the, the witch queen has taken over, so therefore the world is always cold. But the lion is on the move, and the lion represented Jesus. Ashlan is what they called him. You know, he's on the move, and who is Ashlan or Ashlan? You know, he's the great lion, and one of the girls says, I should, I should be nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? And the beaver replies, Safe? Good heavens, no, he is not safe, but he is good. Sometimes that's how we feel. Is Jesus safe? He's the great king. He's the creator of the world. He's the creator of the universe. He stretched out his arms and created it. Heavens, no, he's not safe, especially if he's your enemy, but he is good. He's safe for those who believe in him. Now, I have areas in my life that are not safe from Christ. Why? Because I've given him control. And he takes that truth and he cuts things off. That's not safe. But that's the truth. And he does it with grace. So he's safe, but he's not safe. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come like a thief. He goes on and he says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. In other words, there's a few people in this church, they're not dirty to God. They're not, you know, been out and just, the world has not just covered them completely and just, and overshadowed their life. They haven't fallen asleep. In verse 5, it says, He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, today I wanted to give a chance for us to respond before we leave today. We don't do this every Sunday, but as we've seen the last couple of songs as Randy comes up, I'm going to be up here, and if you need prayer about something, I want to be able to pray for you. Or if you just want to come up, and, you, and you, you, you're like, man, I need to get back in track with God in this one area of my life. It doesn't mean, oh, my, my whole life is destroyed, but this one area, man, I need to get back you know, on track with God. Come up and pray, you know, feel free. Or maybe you've never recognized him as your Savior. And come up, and I'll, I'll talk with you, and tell you what it's about, and pray with you, and we can accept Jesus. But God is speaking to some of you. I didn't write these words that he said. 
man, these sermons in Revelation, some of them have been pretty hard, haven't they? I mean, they've, they've hit us hard. It's like giving you both barrels of a shotgun. But this is what Jesus had to say to the people. My job is to just teach the word, teach the Bible. I've done my part. Now your part is to respond to him in your daily life. And some of that response starts from, man, I need prayer for this. So Randy, why don't you uh, worship for us?